Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am Allison R. Brown, and I am your host. Today we are talking about philanthropy. It's a philanthropy roundtable. Philanthropy translates from Greek to love of people and has come to mean a social sector through which wealthy individuals and corporations can donate money to causes and organizations that they believe in. Although I continue to fight for the root of the word, love of people, anyone really can be a philanthropist and give love (laughs) to their fellow human beings. Two of my friends and mentors and peers in philanthropy are here with me today, and both of them embody that original spirit of philanthropy, love of people. I'm so happy to have with me today, Liz Sack is the executive director of the Cricket Island Foundation. Welcome, Liz. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. And Nat Chioke Williams is the executive director of the Hill Snowden Foundation. Welcome to Schoolhouse, Nat. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. So you are both the heads of prominent foundations in the world, and I wanted to get your take. What do you think about where we are today, post-election? How are we in a different place than we were before? Liz, what do you think? Every day that is so far over the past three weeks, I would have a slightly different answer than than the day before at the weight we're moving. I mean, I think primarily because there is so much shifting and changing and there is so much under attack, there is a profound need for philanthropy to rethink sort of at core how we're partnering with our grantees and what our role is in the movement that we're all supporting. You know, in philanthropy, we we oftentimes sort of overcomplicate things and sort of in an effort to do good, we often get in the way. And I think sort of spending some time thinking about about what our role really is and how we can get out of the way, support the movements and um, move the work along is, is going to be most important at this particular moment. Annette, yeah. what about you? I would agree with that. And, and I just want to say up front that Liz and I have not coordinated our answers. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm in complete agreement with what you're saying. I think that, you know, there's a few things for me. There is a lot of fear and, you know, uncertainty in this moment within philanthropy, within the groups on the ground, within the general society. And there's this kind of game, this dance that's happening out there within philanthropy where we are turning to the groups that we're supporting and saying, okay, so what should we do, Mm -hmm. right? And the groups um, who we are supporting they can't give a bad answer to that, or we might not support them anymore, right? And so so they're like, okay, well, we're going to do this, right? Where the reality is if you step back and have a real conversation with anybody, no one knows exactly what to do. We know some things that we need to do in order to prepare. We have every day a slightly better sense of what might be coming down the pipe, but that shifts you know, also every other day. And so the space and time that's needed to just breathe and take in and to think and assess, I think is something that um, philanthropy needs to offer and that the groups who are doing this work on the ground need to have in order to have some real kind of insight and also some real practice that's not driven by this kind of uncertainty and fear and anxiety. So I think that's one thing that, that we need to be real. And I'm just kind of building off of what Liz said. And I think, I think one other thing is, is important too, and I've been saying this lately, and I need to always clarify what I say. So I'm going to say it and then not clarify. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think over the next you know, four years, we are not going to, quote, win as philanthropy defines. 
win it or has defined win it, meaning that a proactive, progressive, and I shouldn't say, we also shouldn't make a philanthropy homogeneous, right? You know, so I'm talking more specifically about progressive philanthropy, social change philanthropy, right? And so social change philanthropy is not necessarily going to win the progressive policies, proactive policies that we see. And even in those spaces where we are defending those Defenses are not necessarily going to be successful all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually gives us a, a pretty good opportunity to do and the freedom to do what we should have been doing anyway, mm-hmm. which is to give general support to build infrastructure and cross-organization capacity to build long-term power. Mm-hmm. Right? It shouldn't be about this project-specific stuff. Oh, let's do this campaign or let's do that campaign that is unconnected to other work going out there. It's about building infrastructure. And it's about trusting the organizations on the ground to do that and not to um, as you said, Liz, you know, to get out of the way and let them do their work, right? And to have the confidence, the faith, the love of not just the people, but the organizations <laughs> that we support to let them do what needs to be done on the ground. That idea about changing measures of success is really very important right now. And Liz, you and I co-wrote a piece in the Chronicle of Philanthropy about Kind of exactly that. And the piece was called As the White House Changes Hands, Philanthropy Must Change, too. And to Nat's point, success is not going to look the way that it has for a long time. At least the next four years, we'll be forced to measure success differently as philanthropy than we have previously. And one of the recommendations in the piece that you and I wrote together, Liz, was about really funding the grassroots. And you and Nat both mentioned the groups on the ground, the organizations at the grassroots level. What does that mean? And how is their work different than other work that people are used to seeing? You know, we at the Hills Order Foundation, we support grassroots community organizing groups. So for us, that means, for the most part, organizations that have budgets of a million dollars or less that are based in local communities that may work on the local city or statewide level, sometimes national, but that build bases within their community that they reach out and build people power. That's, that's their main leverage that they have. And so that's one strategy, community organizing, grassroots community organizers, one strategy for change. You know, I happen to like it, and that's what we support. <laughs> but, I mean, there's a full spectrum of different parts of the ecosystem and the infrastructure for building social, institutional, political power that's needed um, including advocacy and legal work and research. So all those things are important. But going back to your, your earlier point about the, the love of people and that part of philanthropy, mm-hmm. I think there may be a love of people, but there may not necessarily be much trust mm. in people, particularly from aspects of liberal philanthropy, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so therefore, the tendency has been to focus on advocacy, basically professionals that are representing in some way, shape, or form the people who are most affected on the ground, mm-hmm. right? And so there's this disconnect often in us trying to, in philanthropy, impact the uh, lives of people on the ground that's disconnected from those actual lives, right? Mm -hmm. And so grassroots organizing, grassroots work, which can also be frontline service work in some degree, as long as it's tied to systems reform, is, is an essential part 
of all that. I think it needs to be centralized more within the complex of the different parts of the infrastructure for social change. Liz, what does it mean to you and Cricket Island Foundation to fund groups on the ground? I think Nat and I will be doing this a lot, which is that everything that Nat said, um, <laughs> I, I agree with. And I think, you know, I would add in, it's also, you know, sort of paying attention to who's leading the organizations and making sure that they're led by the people and, and employing people that they're um, engaging. Mm-hmm. As Nat mentioned, a lot of times it's, you know, people that are working for, not with. I think also in philanthropy, Nat mentioned infrastructure. And I think one of the failures that we've had sort of on progressive philanthropy is we haven't invested enough in leadership and in infrastructure support. And so a lot of these grassroots organizations, the smaller organizations, don't have the capacity to do, you know, the kind of reporting or budget stuff and so on and so forth that foundations, traditional foundations are looking for. Mm -hmm. And so how do we move from enabling them and saying, look, whatever you give us is fine, to saying, whatever you give us is fine, let's talk about how you can talk to other folks. And I think we need to pivot to helping the organizations become stronger, become able to communicate more broadly, all the while sort of reducing as many of the burdens as we can on them. But you asked sort of what makes them different. And I think, you know, somebody, I remember in 2008 when there was, you know, obviously less money was was leaving philanthropy to, to support some of these organizations. And somebody said to me, you know, some of these folks, these grassroots organizations, they're going to move on with or without money. I mean, their work it's not about that, right? It transcends being an organization. It's about it's about a movement. And yeah. so, but I think at this moment, they need the money to sort of have the voice and the, the leverage that they need. And I think, you know, the other way that they may look different than some of the traditional organizations is that they are, again, you know, sort of engaging and being led by the folks in their community. Yeah. And their path to power has a very sort of local, state, and national approach. You know, one thing that that makes me think of, Liz, is that the groups on the ground, you know, quote unquote, are not necessarily 501c3 nonprofit organizations that are registered with the federal government. And in this climate, we're sitting here now, you know, some days after what has been a spike in immigration enforcement where the federal government is certainly indicating its willingness to crack down on the folks who are on their radar, you know, as carrying some kind of label of illegal or undocumented or not supposed to be where they are. And so I I don't imagine that the groups that you all are talking about will be more likely to register for their 501c3 nonprofit status with the federal government and potentially will be much less likely to do so. I think that that's an uncomfortable factor for major philanthropy. And so, you know, it's something that we have to think about. And I I also think a big question for philanthropy right now is about accountability and how we can be comfortable because philanthropy is its own sector. It doesn't have the same kind of rules and guidance and structure of accountability that other sectors do. And so it really is incumbent, I think, on our grantees to hold us accountable to them and their interests. And I think there's probably a great resistance in philanthropy for that. But, you know, have you seen accountability structures in philanthropy that allow for the grantees to provide feedback to the organization and to really hold them accountable for their mission? I think there are different philanthropies, probably, uh, or philanthropic institutions, you know, probably is not included that 
talk about and emphasize the role of being in partnership mm-hmm. with the groups that we support, like we call them grassroots partners, like grantees, you know, mm-hmm. and we spend a lot of time trying to cultivate relationships and all those things. And, and it is important because we recognize the power imbalance and dynamic that happens between, quote, grantees and grantors, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, in reality, even though it's important for the particular relationship, it's a shell game overall. I mean, because fundamentally, you're not going to have a grantee, someone who is seeking, you know, support, say, well, you need to do this better. That doesn't happen, right? Yeah. It doesn't happen for good reason. Um, <laughs> so, so, I mean, I think, I think we need to be kind of real on what the dynamics are and that the accountability that is is there has to be levied from within, right? Mm-hmm. It has to be philanthropists, you know, holding other philanthropy accountable. And there may be some, you know, government intervention in there. And so, for instance, years ago, there was a bill in California that was trying to, you know, regulate philanthropy recording racial data on their grants. Right, so that there could be some level of measurement of tracking how many resources are actually going to communities of color. You know, philanthropy almost writ large fully rejected that. Right, mm-hmm. you know, they fought against it. They lawyered up, right, <laughs> and tried to fight back against that. And so there is some level of kind of other intervention I think is necessary when people don't do what they really should be doing on their own. But I do think that. Again, now we're in a different kind of environment, right? Mm -hmm. If people fundamentally believe that what we are experiencing now is a kind of untold threat to the way that we see the world should be operating to everything that we hold dear, Mm -hmm. then to me, that means we need to fund like our own lives, our own family's lives depended on it, and not just some folks over there that we happen to be interested in, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we take it from that perspective, there are a number of different things that we need to do in order to be accountable to real change that is led by the folks who are most affected. But again, that's something that we have to compel ourselves to do. We have to hold each other accountable to do it. Also, part of the accountability issue is that money is so individualized within this society, right, within this culture. And so philanthropy is a hyper-individualized state, Mm -hmm. right? And so the decisions that boards make about their money, um, even if it's not their money, Mm -hmm. can't be question, and it, and it does not fall into question. And so one of the things that frustrates me is the number of, at least on the progressive side, the number of foundations that are spending down, right? Yeah. And there are probably good reasons for that, but it's done within a broader sector, but it's an individual act that is impacting that sector overall, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but no one can say, hey, why'd you do that? Or, or don't maybe do we that. should talk about that before you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you do that. But so, so again, that's mm-hmm. part of the way that I think we're going to have to start, you know, reaching out, being accountable to one another in ways that this moment allows us and gives us the freedom um, to start experimenting with new ways of being. Liz, what say you? What he said. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I guess... <laughs> And I really appreciate that sort of, you 
know, lifting the veil on this, like the idea that there's going to be accountability coming from the, our grantee partners to us is necessarily going to be, you know, 100% transparent and honest and all those things because there is a power dynamic there. And I think a couple of things. I mean, A is that within philanthropy and sort of within progressive movements in general, there's a lot of shaming and judgment about what people do. And, and I think part of the challenge at this moment is sort of recognizing, you know, for a staff member at a foundation, kind of where their foundation's at and being willing to say like, okay, so let's figure out how we can talk about your broadening your base of support or, you know, but not sort of telling people what they're doing is wrong. Because there are lots of politics, as Nat mentioned, um, there are boards, there are lots of other things that are involved. And so, being willing to sort of accept folks and sort of figure out how to help them kind of shift their focus or get a broader awareness of what's going on and so on. I I think the other thing is that both of us are national funders, and I think we often, not only is there a shift needed in terms of how we think about the groups on the ground and sort of how we're engaging with grassroots organizations, but also foundations that are local funders Mm -hmm. and local funding partners and figuring out, if you look at maps, you know, Allison, we've done this with the Communities for Just Schools Fund about where there is work happening and where there isn't, or at least work that we can see, mm-hmm. there are huge gaps. And so I think, you know, we need to also be willing to sort of push each other around, you know, not just going to what we know, but going to places that, you know, we know there are folks that are doing the work that are not getting money, that are doing non-traditional sources, yeah. and figuring out how to partner with local funders there and to work through some of the local politics to get money to the groups that are doing, you know, really critical work in areas that are disconnected from some of these, you know, more progressive movements and conversations, right? And I think, as Allison, you know, you and I have talked a lot about, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of funder collaborators at this particular moment. I think they provide a great space for folks to hold each other accountable in ways that move beyond institutions, right? Because mm-hmm. everybody's sort of putting in funding together. And so you're able to be um, more nimble and more creative and more entrepreneurial in terms of the kind of funding that you're doing. I think they're great spaces. And I think you're also able to get money, you know, into areas that maybe traditional national funders can't get into because mm-hmm. the work isn't, you know, quote unquote, a lot of funders use words ready, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, so I think there's lots of different levels of accountability. and I, But I think part of it is, you know, I was, I was at a meeting this morning with um, the Lawyers Alliance in New York that Maria Matola, mm-hmm. that as well, uh, put together with the New York Foundation. And a lot of the meeting was about sort of what are the legal limits to how we are doing our our work. And a lot of the conversation was holding ourselves accountable for saying, like, this isn't really about us. Like, okay, how are we, you know, continuing to do the work we want to do and keeping our grannies at the center? And so I think there are spaces like that that are important at this particular moment for creating a sense of accountability within philanthropy, that there are new tables that are emerging. I think there are tables that already exist that are moving in those directions. I think Communities for Jet Schools Fund has done that. Founders Collaborative for Youth Organizing has done that. I think there are local tables that are popping up. So I think that, you know, some of it is recognizing the limits to traditional accountability that are possible within philanthropy just by nature of what it is. Mm-hmm. But again, I agree 100% with what Nat was saying, that we need to be willing to push ourselves in those spaces and to being uncomfortable and to figuring some of this out. Yeah. Right. So let, let me just, if I could just say a couple more words on this, yeah. just really quickly. So whereas, you know, our, quote, grantees may not be able to compel us, you know, effectively, in some cases they may be, but we need to basically do that for ourselves. I do think that looking at over the next four years, we can hold ourselves accountable to doing things differently. And I don't mean funding, like choosing different 
issues yeah. and or choosing different strategies per se. I actually mean doing things differently. There's some real simple things that we need to do. We need to give more money, right? <laughs> I mean, that's if we're at the same like payout level yeah. four years from now as we are today, then we have not done what we mm. needed to do. So we should be held accountable for that, yeah. right? We need to be given more general support in order to allow groups to respond to the new contours that are out there that sometimes it's really hard to predict and we can't, like, you know, condense into a product-specific, you know, proposal all the time. We need the flexibility. If we are not doing more general support, given four years from now as we did today, we are not doing what we need to do and we should be held accountable uh, for that. I think that there needs to be broader cross-institutional, at least strategic thinking at the trustee level, Mm. right? And so from the collaboratives are great, but that's already a designated pot of money that's going somewhere. And then, yeah, you could do different things with that. But what I was talking about before is that trustees of foundations need to get together to have strategic conversations about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. And in that way, influence each other's vision. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that you, you know, like sign a pledge to do something differently. I'm not going to happen to. But we're not even having those conversations as a standard within the practice. And then the last thing that I think is that we need to make available plentiful resources on a consistent, regularized basis for our groups to get together to have those strategic conversations, yeah. right? This is part of the infrastructure that needed. People need to talk. They need to strategize together. They need to build together. They need to struggle together in order to um, meet new challenges. And if there's been a time when we need to get together to meet a new challenge, this is it. It's a philanthropy as a facil- basically a facilitating institution should they facilitate that as a regular thing. Again, not just crisis management. This needs to be a regular part of the infrastructure moving forward. I want to, with that, kind of talk more about what you each are doing to ensure that philanthropy is moving in a different direction or moving together in a direction that you are going you know, Liz, for example, you mentioned the tables that you are part of, the conversations that you are part of, the groups, the philanthropy groups that are coming together, including donor collaboratives, which is like the Communities for Just Schools Fund, to bring together foundations to pool their resources and get those resources to organizations that really need them quickly with a shared strategy, shared vision, and a shared mechanism for internal accountability within the sector of philanthropy. And, you know, the donor tables that are popping up locally, like the New Orleans network of funders and, and other things. How, Liz, how are you and Cricket Island Foundation advancing youth organizing as a very unique strategy for systems change with your philanthropy partners? I think a couple of different things. And one is, I think, trying to create as many opportunities to amplify the voices of our grantees as we can. I mean, you know, I think it's very easy in philanthropy to make the story about us, but the story really needs to be about our grantee partners. And so finding ways and proactively creating as many ways as possible for those opportunities to come up for them. So we fund in three cities, New York, Chicago, and New Orleans. And I think in all three cities, we've made a very sort of focused effort to create spaces for funders to 
to come together to create more coordinated sort of funding opportunities to create some accountability measures and places for folks to hold each other accountable for. I mentioned the meeting to Maria and I, Matola and I from the New York Foundation right after the elections happened, sort of decided we were going to get the local of the New York social justice funders together, um, some of whom fund locally, some of whom fund nationally. So this, the first meeting was really, it was kind of great because people were just talking about, I mean, there's a lot of obviously processing in the election, mm-hmm. but then it moved to kind of what are the things we can do? And there was a really kind of direct, like you could be writing the reports, your grantees, and, and actually Sean Delaney from, from uh, Lawyers Alliance reiterated this morning, things like reporting requirements, like what grantees give in, mm-hmm. there's no legal requirement that grantees are the ones writing their proposals or writing the reports, right? Like you could do those things over the phone and then have your staff transcribe it so that you have the record keeping you need. And so there was a whole conversation around things like that, that a couple of folks went like, wow, I didn't realize that, and actually shifted what they were doing. They moved to, you know, shifted to doing general operating support, shifted to doing multi-year. We mm-hmm. also had a conversation about how multi-year is different than renewable. So things like that, we're doing a similar conversation in Chicago that were um, put together with the Woods Fund and the Crossroads Fund. And I think, you know, again, I'm I'm a big advocate of kind of those local spaces because I think it's important to have local funders engaged in those conversations because ultimately we're a national funder. We don't, you know, we're not giving anybody enough money to keep their doors open. So those other partnerships, particularly because national philanthropy tends to kind of, you know, move in and out of, out of areas. Mm. So I think our approach has been to sort of um, really focus on those local relationships and then on the national level to work through some of the collaborative tables that we're already at and some of the intermediary spaces that we're in to get, again, our grantees opportunities and to get ourselves some platforms to talk about some of the the things that Nat and I have both been mentioning. Um, We did a session not too long ago in Philanthropy, New York, where we had two, a group from Chicago and a group from New Orleans talking about kind of what under grantee relationships should look like, what healthy Mm -hmm. ones look like. And it was great because they were the ones actually talking to this room full of funders in the city. So I think there's a whole range of things um, I think that we're trying to do. And again, um, I think broadly, our approach is, is that, you know, we recognize that it would be great if everybody, you know, kind of held the same values that we did and funded in the same ways that we do. But we also recognize that, you know, there are lots of folks have trustees and board members and other things that get in the way of their ability. I mean, I'm totally with Nat on the, it would be great to get trustees involved in these conversations. And I know Philanthropy mm-hmm. New York, which is an organization here in New York that I'm on the board of, is actually putting a trustee event together. It's challenging for lots of different funders to get their trustees into those conversations. I think, you know, we will continue to push those things while also continuing to embrace folks who aren't able to go as far as we would like, but are but are moving in that direction. I think the important thing is that there's movement. And Nat, you have been the leader and creator of what is the Black Social Change Funders Network. You put out a vitally important piece on ending white supremacy. You know, your frame has been about race and really tackling structural racism. I want you to share with folks how you are thinking about philanthropy and uh, your peers in philanthropy and, and bringing them along with you as you are working around anti-Black racism and to dismantle the myth of white supremacy. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, published this piece called On Ending White Supremacy on, on Medium, and it was my 
post-election reflection, right? It took me about two months <laughs> to write it. And it was talking about the very, what I call, fragile opportunity that we in the progressive movement uh, may have in this moment to expose, to challenge, to defeat, and most importantly, to replace elite white male supremacy. And I string those three words together importantly because it's about voracious capitalism, white supremacy really predicated on anti-black racism as its kind of foundational architecture, Mm -hmm. and patriarchy. It's those three kind of legs of the stool that are holding up or or holding down, you know, most of the inequity that we see in the world. And the opportunity at this moment is for us to start building Across constituency, so across race, across class, across gender, across orient, across um, sexual orientation, across religion, across national status, across everything, right? And also across strategy and sector. So you're not just having issues, but you're focused on building power. That's what this moment kind of calls for. And and if I step back for a second, you know, Black Social Change Funders Network is one of the philanthropic. I guess, affinity groups that we have to start in order to leverage resources to support and really advocate for philanthropy to contribute and invest much more heavily and much more in a committed fashion to the infrastructure for institutional, political, and social power in the Black community. We feel that Black-led social change infrastructure is really a cornerstone for um, the multiracial, multi-constituency progressive movement that we're talking about building, Um, and that if that sector is weak, then everything else is kind of weak by equal measure. Mm -hmm. But our approach has a very kind of tiny foundation, right? We're we're relatively small, Mm -hmm. but we try to lead with our thoughts, at least a little bit of our analysis. And our analysis is that there are there are key parts of the infrastructure that have been neglected over time, which have led us to not be able to fully actualize our potential and our most ambitious goals relative to progressive social justice movement. So, for instance, another group that we helped start was is Grant Makers for Southern Progress. Mm-hmm. And the focus there was to try to get national foundation in particular, but also Southern foundations, to invest more heavily in um, social change, social justice work in the South because they had overlooked it for so many times. And we published a report there called Add the South Coast, So Goes the Nation. Mm-hmm. We could call that now Add the South Coast, So With the Nation because yes. <laughs> in part because of the, the lack of investment in building a progressive infrastructure and actually, you know, taking a risk and chance on the South has really led to where we are today on the national scene, Mm -hmm. right? And then the other part of that, to me, is that the underinvestment in Black-led social change infrastructure has also helped us to get to where we are today, mm. right? And so so we really do want to focus at least on, I mean, and there's several other parts of the infrastructure. Those are the two that, that, that we have looked at. Looking at the South, looking at um, Black-led infrastructure for, for power, and there's a lot of overlap there, too, just in terms of the number of Black people who live in the South. And, and so none of those things can be divorced from this ideal of a kind of racial bias and bias in how philanthropic dollars are given out, right? And mm-hmm. so um, in the past couple of years, there's been a, 
I guess, a surge, relatively speaking, in conversations and initiatives and interest in racial equity. From our perspective, the first thing that um, philanthropy could do in order to help establish racial equity is to look at its own grant making and see if they actually are funding an equitable fashion, you know, across races, and particularly as it relates to Black-led organizations. And I, and I would hazard a guess that most um, foundations on that measure will not, you know, kind of meet, meet the standard. And so, so I think, again, we get into this place of projected outside of ourselves. You know, we want to see a world out there yeah. that is in a particular fashion, but we're not looking at how we are part of that own world, right? Mm-hmm. We're not looking at we're part of, of continuing and propagating that. And so building necessary infrastructure, looking for our blind spots, those places where we have not invested, those places that um, are really critically important for building the, the, the long-term power for creating progressive change in this country. I think that's, again, another opportunity that we have in this moment to stop doing what we, not necessarily stop doing what we've always been doing, mm-hmm. but to expand beyond what we've always been doing so that we can see new opportunities, um, so that we can actually have a chance to long-term, long-term win. I'm not talking about a four years. I'm talking about long, long-term. I want to read a portion of your piece, Nat. Your piece is called On Ending White Supremacy. And this part starts with, so many in our communities are terrified and anxious about the future and for good reason, but I will let you in on a little secret. We have perhaps never been closer to ending white supremacy as we are right now. This is a bold statement and you probably think I am in a state of deep denial, but hear me out. To be clear, I did not say that white supremacy will end soon. Indeed, it will be emboldened during the Trump era and continue to evolve and persist for the foreseeable future. That said, I firmly believe that we have never been closer to ending it relative to other moments in history. You know, I was watching a a news piece the other day, and they were tracking hooligans in Russia. And, you know, that's not my term. That's apparently that's a that's a term of art these days, hooligans. You know, they were highlighting the global nature of this white male resistance to demographic change, to mm-hmm. power shift, and the last grasp, the last hold, the death throes of the myth of white male supremacy. It's so prevalent. And, you know, this is, it really tracks with conversations that you and I have had, Liz, about how to make sure that philanthropy is explicit about its understanding of race and patriarchy and, you know, that piece about the corporate hold and economic justice as well, you know, is important to incorporate. But how do you make sure that philanthropy is talking about that at the core of what needs to be done going forward? You know, the thing that that I, I feel like we don't talk enough about is our processes and the practices that we have. So when you're looking at a map, for example, and there's, you know, in the city, for example, there's not a lot of philanthropic dollars going to the South Bronx, right, which doesn't make any sense. So rather than, than asking questions, holding ourselves accountable for why we aren't able to get money there, in other words, maybe we have practices that are at core 
you know, keeping people out, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't have those conversations enough about what is it that we're doing that's closing the door to Mm -hmm. folks accessing. It's a lot about access. And I think it's something that philanthropy, you know, we get stuck in our processes, which by nature, for a lot of us, you know, close the door to a lot of the kind of work that Matt's talking about and that we've been talking about right now. And we mm-hmm. get stuck there. And we, so rather than kind of push ourselves to rethink how we can change our processes, you know, we just sort of continue to fund the same things that make us comfortable. So rather than say, well, they didn't hand in their report and we talked to them three times and gee, I don't think they're ready for us. It was like, okay, this is an important organization, they're doing important work in this community, like, let's think about how we're going to move them forward, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of Mm -hmm. saying, they didn't make it in, saying, like, how do we keep you in, or how do we get you in, or what do we need to do with you, or what can we do to change our processes to give you access? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, I think, you know, my fear in philanthropy is always, like, folks, like, they have a little checkbox of, like, oh, we did that, or we counted and we're fine. And I think that helps keep things as they are. So, you know, I would love to see philanthropy push itself more deeply to look at their processes and ask questions around access. And it's not just access, you know, in terms of grant making, it's, you know, how are folks in communities finding out about the funding that you have? How are folks able to access, you know, variety of funding, all of those kinds of things. And instead of sort of, again, being comfortable saying no, being uncomfortable with not being asked enough, right? Like Mm -hmm. that we should be pushing ourselves more around some of those kinds of issues. And I will say there are a million ways to answer this question. And I'm, I know, I'm sure Nat has some other ideas. So I don't, I don't think there is any one answer. Mm -hmm. I think it is going to be a constant process for philanthropy to continue to make ourselves uncomfortable and to be willing to stretch ourselves and ask ourselves questions about what we're doing or what we're not doing. And Nat, let me ask you in this way and, and give you the last word on this, which is, You mentioned at the beginning that there will have to be new measures of success, that the traditional measures of what philanthropy has defined as successful aren't going to work in this climate. So in light of of what you shared in your piece and the work that you're doing with the Black Social Change Funders Network and your thinking just generally on race and the myth of white supremacy, what are the new measures of success that philanthropy is going to have to be clued into? I think it's um, a couple things. One is, to Liz's point, I mean, I do think it's a matter of practice and access, but it's fundamentally a matter of a priority, too, right? So, you know, what is it that, as, and again, I'll name progressive philanthropy or social change philanthropy, whatever, what are our priorities and what's our actual kind of vision for how we will help to create, you know, this new world that we we want to see. And for me, the fundamental opportunity we have right now is to switch from an issues-based kind of approach. Mm -hmm. So we kind of divide up the world into these different issues and we cut our issues. And so, you know, it's this really kind of segmented, satellite, you know, artificial view of the world. So looking at switching from one eye issue to another eye infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. And to looking at what's the ecosystem of organizations 
organizations, of connective tissue between those organizations, and of the ability to have a kind of strategic vision and as an ongoing part of that. What's the ecosystem, what's the infrastructure that's needed in order to move forward a progressive agenda writ large, right? And that's a very different way for philanthropy and, frankly, you know, for nonprofit groups to think about how to move forward an agenda for change. But, you know, again, the the vision is either about reform, so you could tinker around with some things and you could make some adjustments. And then if that's the case, then, yeah, having an issue-based approach makes sense because you're really not trying to change everything. You're just trying to change a little something over here, Mm -hmm. right? But if your analysis is that fundamentally the way that the systems, you know, the institutions are set up is that throughout all of them, there is a a fundamental need to transform the foundational values and principles and operational practices of them, then you can't just focus on the individual thing. You have to look at a broader way of not just mobilizing power, but having the ability to have a much broader swath of, of change. And so so that's the benchmark for me, is not necessarily getting rid of issues, but doing it in such a way that it's a both and. Mm-hmm. In the piece I talk about, and on Indian White Supremacy, I talk about the need to develop a double vision, you know, meeting the immediate needs of folks, but also building power to seize control and transform the overall kind of um, system. Those are the two things that we have to do together. And if we're not doing the latter, which is this, you know, really building power to gain control and to transform, then we're always going to be torn around the edges. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, we also, with the Black Social Change Funders Network, last week we released a case statement, the case for funding Black-led social change. And in that, what we really were trying to say is that, again, The infrastructure for black institutional political and social power is a vital component for this ultimate movement for progressive change and transformation in this country. And we need to build that up. And so we're actually making a preliminary um, shot across the bow to say, you know, over the next five years, we want to see a 25% increase from philanthropy. And this is not just progressive philanthropy, this is at large, for investing in black-led institutional and political and social power organizations, black-led social change um, organizations, as a way of starting to reconstruct the alliances, the base, the infrastructure, and again, this overall kind of sense of the interconnected tissue that we'll need to build long-term generationally over time so that we can get to a place where we're not having the same conversation, you know, say 50 years from now. I really have admired your work and been so informed in my own work by the both of you. So I'm just appreciative for you and what you do. And I'm thanking you for for being guests on Schoolhouse, but mostly just for being who you are and for doing the work that you do. So thank you. Liz, how can people find you and Cricket Island Foundation online if they are so inclined? 
They can check out our website, which is www.cricketisland.org, or they can just email me, Liz, at cricketisland.org, and happy to connect with anyone interested in moving everything forward. And Nat, how can people find you and the Hill Snowden Foundation if they want to? So our website is www.hillstonen.org. You can find some basic information about the foundation there. In terms of the workouts referencing today, the Black Social Change Funders Network, you can go to www.blacksocialchange.org org and learn more about that work there and grant makers for something progress um, you can go to www.nfg.org backslash Grant Makers for Southern Progress or just Google Grant Makers for Southern Progress. And thank you, Allison, for all that you do and all that you have been doing. I really appreciate your leadership. Ditto, Allison. You've been a shining light. So thank you for putting this together and for everything else you're doing for the field. Well, thank you both again. And thanks to everyone for listening to Schoolhouse. Remember to follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Have a wonderful week.